Our speaker today has been behind bars all throughout the state of Missouri and many other states of the Midwest. Mark Wilkinson comes to us. His day job is as a chaplain for the Missouri Department of Corrections. He usually works down in the Potosi prison. But he also works for the Christian Prison Ministry of the Midwest, where he goes in and performs prison ministry at many other facilities all throughout the region. And as I was getting up here, he said, now be nice. <laughs> he doesn't know me well, does he? <laughs> Mark is a great guy. I've known him for years. Uh, Mark, you've known my family for a long, long time. And what I can tell you, many of you have heard Mark come and speak to us before, but as I'm looking out, I see a lot of you who probably haven't heard him speak before. I tell you a few things. Number one, you have missed out. He's an engaging speaker. He's got some fantastic stories of what God is doing in difficult places full of darkness. Friends, God's Spirit sends light through his gospel. I'll tell you that Mark also is a man who understands that even the worst, those who have done the worst among us, need Jesus too. And that God's redemptive work in Christ applies even to those. And, for, and he says, friends, we'd better hope it does because one of these days most of them are getting out of prison and living next door to us. We want them to come to Christ. We want them to know God's healing and restoring power in Jesus. And I will also tell you that Mark is a man who has dedicated himself to bringing that gospel to people in those situations. He's a great guy, a great speaker, fun to be around. Mark, come and preach to us. And now I owe him money. <laughs> Thanks, Phil. Okay, I'll pay <laughs> now, That would be a pleasure, too. You know, it's a little nerve-wracking because Mike Barbarkus is back there, and he hadn't heard me preaching. Oh, two or three years anyway. But uh, it is good to be here and to be with you all. My primary goal is to say thank you. Uh, thank you for your support. It allows us to be able to do the ministry that we do. And we wouldn't be able to do that as effectively if we didn't have the financial support that we need to be able to uh, get our volunteers and our staff into the prisons that we're working in. We're in over 33 right now in four different states. We're back into most of them in Missouri now. COVID has kind of let itself up, and we're not in, the, uh, in any kind of restriction. I finally made it back to Illinois, which is a challenge, <clears throat> because they're still wearing masks over there for some reason. I'm not sure exactly why, but it's, it, it is the case. Uh, but I am back teaching over in South, uh, Southwestern uh, Correctional Institute in East St. Louis on Wednesday evenings and teaching the story there which is wonderful to be able to see the big picture of God and what he's doing and how he works with some of the most mis misfits uh, of all time, like Moses and some of the others. They were, they were godly men, uh, but they were sinners. And, and he, he uses, he uses uh, those type of individuals. And, uh, and I'm, I'm, I'm teaching Inside Out Dads in uh, Pacific and also in Farmington. Uh, most of this happens on a, on a Wednesday. I work a 40-hour week for the, the Department of Corrections. Having said that, um, uh, nothing that I've already said or about to say is the opinion of the Department of Corrections and God, all God's people said. <laughs> Amen. Um, that's one of those things, they, that policy they made up when I, when I got this job, actually. 
Don't go out there and say bad things about us. I don't have anything bad to say about a bureaucracy. It's just like everything else. It's made up of people who are messed up. And so, uh, you know, <clears throat> and I'm one of the ones that are messed up. So it's, it's really okay. And so uh, anyway, I, I, I work four days a week for the department. And I work one, uh, two days for the, basically for the ministry. And I am thoroughly enjoying it. They, they kind of dovetail into each other. And it allows me to be able uh, to, to seamlessly move from one place to the other. And the best part about being a part of uh, the chaplaincy is it gives me a, a lot of a leeway when I walk into a facility. They don't look at me as a volunteer, uh, at least the staff don't. They look at me as, as a chaplain. And that has opened up some avenues because we're short staff. And so I'm thankful that they trust me to be able to supervise these guys uh, and be able to teach them. So we really work hard with Inside Out Dads as a big part of our ministry. It's a program where we're trying to teach uh, uh, the men with whom we primarily work with. We do go to the two women's prisons in, in Missouri as well. Um, Ernesto uh, Corbin does that for us and teaches anger, anger management. So you can imagine anger management in a women's prison. Um, they're kind of mad at the men who got them there most of the time. But anyway, uh, we deal with a lot of the, of the, of the male uh, institutions in, in all of the states uh, since there are more males that are incarcerated than women. But anyway, um, we, uh, we, we teach them how to communicate with their significant others. And when I say others in the plural, uh, some of them, I have one guy that has six different ladies and has children with all six of them. And he's trying to navigate that. And, uh, and he's learned that that was a really big mistake in his younger life. Um, but... Uh, when he went through the class, he learned how to be quiet and listen. And uh, he said that was one of the things he said. I learned one thing. I learned how to needed to be quiet and just listen to what they had to say. I said, how'd that go? Well, she didn't know. What's wrong? What's wrong? You're not talking. Why are you not talking? <laughs> he said, I finally said, I'm learning how to listen. And so uh, that opened up some avenues for uh, a couple of the ladies that he was working with. So if we know that if we can connect them with their families, their recidivism rate drops immensely. Uh, Phil is right. We're, we're, we're going to release about 90 to 95% of all those that are incarcerated right now. Uh, they're, they're not going to be released right now. But those that are incarcerated right now are going to be released eventually back into our, our neighborhoods. And I want them to know Jesus. And I want the church to gather around them too, by the way. When they get out, they need a place of refuge, and, uh, and they need that, that love and that hope. So um, your ministry to them is, in a, as a community is important, and we have a couple of your community members already uh, just recently from, from this community in, in Potosi. So uh, Potosi is death row, so I work in a very dark place. Uh, I would say that probably 80% of the guys I work with are not going to get out. And so that changes their attitude. Uh, I don't have anything to lose, that type of thing. So it's really important that we get them grounded in their faith because their faith keeps them from acting out in ways they shouldn't because the grace of God has great effect. But that happens because of your support and the help that we have to be able to go into these facilities and to share the gospel. So thank you. Uh, we just really appreciate it. And I love the fact today that we're going to get chilly, Mike. 
And, and I think it's even better that you guys are supporting the ministry that they're doing in Russia. That is so, so, so important. Um, uh, we, can, we can take Russia just the way they're trying, to, uh, the communists want to take us, which is from the inside out. And I would rather go out after them than them after us. And so I am thankful for uh, the ministry that, that uh, is being done in, in, in Russia. So we're going to enjoy some chili, be able to do some support, and glorify God in all of that. And I love that. So thank you for that privilege today. I uh, heard a story of a preacher who got up to preach, and as he was standing up there, he had a big, a big, uh, uh, I lost the mandate. There it is. Had a big bandaid on his face, and he's apologizing. I have this bandaid on my face because I was thinking about my sermon this morning, and as I was thinking about my sermon and talking through it, I cut my face, so I had to put this bandaid on. The treasurer came up after the offering was passed and handed him a note. And in the note it said, think about, think about your face and cut the sherm, sherm, sermon. <laughs> so I'll, I'll try to work this morning at cutting the sermon so we can get down and get some chili. Now, when, when, Paul, when Paul went to Athens in, in Acts 17, he didn't have a lot of great success there. He was appalled by what he saw as he walked through the city of Athens Athens, of course, was the central focus of the philosophy uh, of, of the Western culture of that day. And whether you believe it or not, has filtered into our Western culture as we think about philosophy today. Some of the major writers of that day would have, would have affected everything that we're dealing with, in, in some of the, in, even in some of the wokeism that we've got going on now. But I, I want you to hear this. He really struggled with them, but he tried to make contact with him as best as he could. In fact, he, as he was walking around, he saw one that, that, that basically said, this is a God to the unknown God. This is an idol to the unknown God, our altar. And he says, I'll tell you about the unknown God. And he preaches about the unknown God, but they're not receptive to that, even though he quotes the philosophers of that day, in him we live and move and have our being. Now, we, we made a real nice camp song out of that years ago, and, and, and we, we get really excited about the fact that it's Scripture. It didn't become Scripture until Paul quoted it and told the story that he was trying to bridge the gap between them and the others. The problem with that is the gap really didn't close. As much as he wanted that gospel there, he was trying to placate and bring them to that relationship. Now, when he went to Corinth, that all changed. When he left Athens and he went to Corinth, as soon as he got to Corinth, they were oppressing him hard. In fact, to the point that we see in the 18th chapter that Paul says that they were persecuting him and they were reviling him to the point that he finally left and he goes next door and basically he shakes his, his, his garments off, which if you've ever seen that done, that would be kind of an amazing thing. He's stomping his feet, he's getting rid of the dust, and he's telling them, I have no blessing for you. In fact, he was so aggravated with them, the, the Jew of all Jews says, I'm going to go to the Gentiles. I'm going to go reach those that you don't think are reachable. And guess what I get to do for a living? I get to go to the people that most people don't think are reachable. And yet, the gospel of Christ has a great effect. Now, here's the thing. He goes in and he gets oppressed so much so that we know that Paul is afraid. 
Do you know why we know that Paul's afraid? Because God shows up in a vision to him and he says, Paul, don't be afraid. (laughs) You don't think about Paul being afraid of anything. And in reality, I can stand up here and I can tell you, I get to go into death row every day and I'm never afraid. That's not true. That's not true at all. We call it a swivel neck camp for a reason. You know what I'm doing? All the time. By the way, I never walk up to an offender if they're standing away from me. I never walk up to them and put my hand on them. Guess what they're doing? They're swivel necking too. Why? Because it's not necessarily the most pleasant place to be in. Now, having said that, I don't really fear for myself so much because um, they see me as the holy man, even though I'm not. They see me as the holy man there. So to some degree, if they, if they do something to me, they're probably going to be in big doo-doo in their minds. And so, you know, I don't think I've ever used doo-doo in a sermon before. <laughs> Sorry. It's better than what they say in prison, just saying. But, but, but here's the thing. I mean, in reality, when you think about uh, this, this idea, they don't want my name on any of their parole papers. It's never good for a chaplain's name to be on a parole paper. And then besides that, I could call fire from heaven and consume them right where they are. And I can't, but they think that. So that's a, I'll, I'll let them think it. But here's the thing. All of us have fear, don't we? I mean, it keeps us away from talking to the people in the store sometimes that, we've, that we know by name. Or we've seen them so many times because they're the ones that frequently cash us out. Whether it's at the gas station or whether it's at Walmart. In the marketplace, we're oftentimes afraid to share our faith. And, 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 And that's a shame because we have this great opportunity to be able to share the greatest message of all. So God says to Paul, he says, don't be afraid. I have many of my people in this city. So let me ask you this question. How many people in the city of St. Charles and in the surrounding area of the county does God have for us to go share the gospel with? You think about that for a minute. Now, I've got a a captive audience, all right? I get that. But in reality, you have all kinds of neighbors all the way around you that need to hear the gospel of Christ. And not only does he say, don't be afraid, he says, don't be silent. I have many in this city who are my people. And so he stayed there a year and six months and he taught. And and you know what? Something is wrong, as Francis Chan says, something's wrong when our lives make sense to the unbeliever. In other words, what I'm challenging you to do is to get out of your comfort zone and be out there in the world, but not of the world, to the point that it makes you uncomfortable and they know that you're different than they are. I have to tell you this story. Down the road from us is a, a neighbor of ours that we've been kind of friends with and talking with. He's not a believer, and yet he's a believer. You know what I'm saying? Uh, he doesn't go to church, but he, he knows who God is, but he's not in a personal relationship with him. He invites us to a, bon- a bonfire, so we go. Now, if you know my wife, my wife is very straight-laced. She came from a very proper family. 
Um, you know, I, I go into my mother-in-law's house and run my hand across the top of the door and say, hey, it's a little dirty in here. I mean, that's, that's how she was raised. So we're sitting at this bonfire and our other neighbor is next to us who makes moonshine. Now, he knows I don't drink because he came up and brought up two quarts to us uh, right after we moved there. He wanted to introduce himself, and he wanted us to know who he was, although I've, I, I've grown up there my whole life, so I knew who he was, knew how he was related to the people around and what have you. But I said, no, nah, I don't drink, so, you know, you, you can go ahead and keep those, but come on down to the patio. We'll sit down. I got some lemonade, and we had, good, had a good coffee. So anyway, I'm sitting there, and he pulls out the first jug of moonshine, and it's got peaches in it. Man, it looked good. <laughs> and then he brought out this strawberry. Man, it looked good. But everybody in the circle wanted to try it, you know. So I'm sitting here, and I'm, I'm, I'm wondering what my wife's getting ready to say, but she's doing really good. And, and so he hands, this, he hands this quart jar to me. He says, I know you don't drink, but they want to have some over there. I said, that's okay. So I hand it to my wife. <laughs> and she hands it right to the next person. Now, no one said anything about what I do until a young man came into the scene and every, every, every other word that he used was the F word. And, and, and <laughs> finally, finally, our host says, hey, that's a preacher there. Don't talk like that. And my response was, I'm not the one that sends him to hell or keeps him in heaven. That was my response. And the place got quiet. That's all I said. I said, I'm not judging you. I hear this all day long. If I had a penny for every time I heard that word, I could retire. But the reality of it is, I'm not going to do it. Now, why did I tell you that story? Because I think one of the biggest problems that we have is that we look more like the world than we should, and we don't stand when we should stand. And just say, I don't, I don't do that. I don't need to. In fact, that kind of language shows me the limitation of your vocabulary. And this young kid's name was Benny Hill, excuse me, Benny Hill. That was his name. Wow. Now here's the point of all of that. We have to be different than the world. We have to be different. And it's okay. It's okay if they point that out, by the way. He told me a side later, he says, I'm really sorry. I said, you don't need to be sorry about anything. I, I said what I needed to say, and I'm not mad at anybody. We stayed another hour and a half, had a good time with them. Did they stop talking that way? No. They didn't. But unless we go where Jesus went with the sinners, they're never going to know. You know, we've, for a long time, we've talked about being seeker-sensitive, you know? And, and I want to tell you something. We got that wrong. You know, you, you have to realize that we're, we're the ones that are supposed to be seeking. Jesus came to seek and to save that which was lost. And if we're going to emulate him, then we're going to be the ones who seek the lost. If you think we're going to do this by having great worship, wonderful lights, and extra smoke on the stage... It's as if, if if we invite people in, they'll find Jesus because we've been hiding him there. But the reality of it is, is that he lives inside of us and he desires more than any else, anything else to flow out of us. 
Now, that was a long introduction, wasn't it? Well, it really leads us to what Paul is talking about in 1 Corinthians 15. The church was messed up. The church was in trouble. I would say that if our culture was different than what it is right now, then our churches would probably be doing their jobs effectively. And I don't want to discourage you, Phil. That's not what I'm, what I'm trying to say. Because I think we're doing the best that we can with where we are right now. But the culture is not changing, is it? Not like it should. Now, having said that, I hope Asbury and the generation that may be looking for God in a way that they've never looked before, I pray that it's of a, it's of a God we can't stop it anyway. Why would we want to? So I, I pray that that's the case because I would love to see an awakening, not just a revival, but an awakening, which means that the church is asleep and those who are wanting to wake up are waking up. And I'm okay with that. But I think that's going to happen when we return, to back, return back to what Paul was talking about to the church. The church was struggling. He told them how they should love each other in, in chapter 13. He talks about spiritual gifts in chapter 14. And in chapter 15, he says, and now I'm going to tell you what's really, 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 really important. And this is what he says. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and which you stand and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preach to you, unless you believe in vain. These two verses become the preamble to what he's getting ready to say in, in the next. It's, in other words, it's a synopsis to what he's getting ready to, to define in the next uh, uh, ten or, uh, eight or ten verses. Now here's the thing that, that, that he comes up with first. He says, I want to remind you of the gospel. So let me ask you this question. What does the word gospel mean? Good news. You ever seen anybody baptized in pickle juice? I've seen a lot of Christians that they don't know that they have good news. I mean, we got some of the best news in the world, don't we? I mean, we've got it like we've never had it before because we live in a world that's dark as, as it's been before. But we have this great news to be able to share. Now, why do we need to be reminded of it? In my pocket, I have these little cards they're, uh, they're their newest ones. That's, that's one of the few things that we've got that's still new. We're still working through getting rid of some of the older stuff. But, but here's the thing that's really cool. These are magnets. And, you, and I, what I want you to do, if you want one, just ask me. I'll pull out my pocket and hand it to you. I got about 20 or 30 of them in my pocket. And, and what you do is you take this home and you become a prayer partner for us because your prayers are more important to us than your money. Now, here's the thing. You put it on your refrigerator right by the handle. And when you go there to get a can of soup out, <laughs> you ever do that? You ever walk to the refrigerator and look for something that's in the pantry? Am I the only one that does that? <laughs> All right, you look at this card, and what does it remind you to do? It reminds you to pray. If you go there at 11 o'clock at night and your wife doesn't know you're sneaking around trying to find something to eat, you pray. Why do I want to remind you? For the same reason that God instituted, Jesus Christ instituted the table in which we came around. We do this in remembrance of him because we're so forgetful. And Paul says, I want to remind you of the gospel in which I preached. And I need to remind you that you already have a gospel, that you have received it, and there is no new gospel. That's important. Because our world right now is trying to fix itself 
with all kinds of new ideas. You know, did you know that if you could be about 6'3", have this real great wavy hair from Texas and have that grin and just be able to tell you that you need to be positive all the time, just think positive. I'm telling you, if you're positive, God will bless you. I didn't use his name, by the way. But if you think that that's the gospel, that is not the gospel. The gospel is not about self-help. The gospel is about getting rid of yourself. I had a Buddhist that came in one time and he says, Chaplain, can you tell me the difference between Buddhism and, and Christianity? They didn't teach us that in, in college, Mike. You taught us a good, you know, good church history. I remember the bad, bad Herald, uh, you know, uh, Herods. I remember those quite well. I remember you teaching us that. I just wish you'd ask me that question. But what he asked me was, what's the difference between Buddhism and Christianity? I said, you go in there and meditate. I'll stay in here and pray, and I'll give you an answer when we get done. When he came in an hour and a half later, I said, hey, what did you learn? What have you been doing for the last hour? He says, I've been emptying myself for the last hour. I said, that's funny. I've been filling myself for the last hour. That's the difference between Christianity and Buddhism. You got to love it when God tells you what to tell them, you know, because that wasn't me, man. <laughs> I'm not that smart. And here's the thing. What's he need? He doesn't need a new gospel. He needs the gospel. So he says, you also need to be reminded to stand on that truth. If you know the truth, the truth will what? Did you know the truth is Jesus? That whole phrase is built around Jesus as he's talking to Thomas. You know the truth, the truth will set you free. If you know me, you know the truth. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And if you know all of that, then you are truly free. And I want, you, I want to tell you today, there are some people in, fr in prison who are more free than those people who are out on the street because they have met Jesus and they have encountered his blood that he talked about earlier. Then he says, I want to remind you that you are continuing to be saved through the gospel. In fact, that's what he says. He says, uh, in which you are being saved. Now, here's the thing you need to understand. When you accept Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior, and you're buried into his death, burial, and resurrection, and you rise in newness of life, he did that for your, to remove your sins from you. Now the Holy Spirit lives inside of you, which is amazing to me. I still can't wrap my mind around it. God's universe is his backyard, but yet he can live inside of me. But when you do that, you are saved. Point action. But then he says here, there is this continuing saving factor that continues on and praise God for that. Anybody struggle with sin? Every day. Driving up here, I was trying not to speed and I was so mad at everybody who was going choom, choom, choom and cutting in front of me. You know what I wanted to do? I can see him coming up on the one side. I just want to swing over. And get about halfway over and go, oh, I better get back, <laughs> you know. I'm liable to kill myself doing something like that, right? There are consequences to sin. But my thought was wrong. And I repented as I was driving. Lord, I am sorry. You don't let me do that. And men and women, we struggle every day when we turn on the TV and we see all these beautiful bodies that are out there, right? And God says, don't covet another man's wife and don't covet her husband. Do we still struggle with those things? You bet we do. If you don't, let me know. 
I, I want to talk to you about it. And I'm not even talking about just that specifically. We can talk about all kinds of different things that we deal with. Paul says it this way, I know what I'm supposed to do, then I don't do it. And the things I ought not to do, I do. By the way, that, that's not too confusing, is it? We want to say it's confusing, but it's not. That's the battle. But here's the grace. God says, I saved you from all of your sin. Now, shall you go on saying that grace may abound? God forbids that. Habitual sin needs to be attacked with everything we got. That's what I deal with every day inside of prison. And guess what? I deal with it outside of prison too. Right. But here's the best news. We are saved and we are continually being saved by the blood of Jesus Christ. And I can live in that type of security. Now, I can't live in eternal security. It's not there. Albert McGee taught it really well. He says, you find yourself in a bad state. If you stay in that state long enough, you'll find yourself lost. And of course, we tried to get him to tell us when that was going to be. And his statement was, I can't tell you when that's going to be. But why would you want to flirt with it? I can't do the high-pitched voice, Mike, that he did. But, but here's the deal. He's not asking us to perpetuate sin that grace may abound. He's saying, fight it. But live in the security as you fight it because you've already been saved. He died for, for all of your sins. Not for part of them, but all of them. Now, that's challenging because now he's going to define that pretty simply. That's the preamble. Now we see that Paul breaks the gospel down. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I received. Verse 3, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scripture, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with scripture, and then he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve, and then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at the same time, uh, uh, brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James and to all the apostles. And last of all, to as one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. Now here's the amazing thing. He says, let me define the gospel. The gospel is simple. God loved us so much that he sent his son. And not only did he send his son, he prophesied about that sending in the third chapter of Genesis. And that crimson thread that runs all the way through the Old Testament points to the cross. 750 years before his death, burial, and resurrection, all predicted. Born of a virgin. Why? Because man's sin of Adam would have been in him otherwise. Deity and manhood combined in Jesus. It blows my mind but by faith, I believe it to be true. If I lose that, then I lose the first importance. And, and the awakening that we may be seeing right now will only because, become because of the grace of God and the understanding of the first importance of that gospel, that he died on that cross for us, that he became the propitiation of our sins. By the way, if you don't know what that means, go look it up. It won't hurt you. It's okay. I'll give you some assignments. Preachers don't need to be afraid to use biblical terms. And I know you're not. You're not afraid of that, are you, Phil? No, I didn't think so. So here's my point. The gospel is still as simple as it always has been. Here's a gift I want to give you. Will you accept it? Yes, I'll accept it. 
And in accepting Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior, you understand that grace becomes the basis of the salvation, that faith becomes the means in which we come into a relationship with Christ, and baptism becomes the point of birth. And out of that watery grave, we come alive. And the best part about it is, is what he says next as, he breaks, as he's broken down this gospel. He basically says this, that lukewarm people, this is Francis Chan, by the way, lukewarm people don't really want to be saved from their sins. They want only to be saved from the penalties of sins. I want to be saved from all of my sins. Sure, I want the penalty gone. Jesus Christ took the penalty on the cross. I don't want to bear that. But because of his death, burial, and resurrection, uh, he rose on that third day. We have hope and life eternal. And it was determined by multiple witnesses. You know, we saw a trial in the last week or two, six weeks. Is that right? What? Murdoch? Y'all saw that? Yeah, I've never seen anything like it. World's coming to, to an end and we're watching a guy. Anyway, I had an offender walk in. I had that on, on my television in my office. He walked in. He goes, that guy's guilty. <laughs> Takes one to know one. Let me tell you what, there wasn't very many witnesses in that particular trial, by the way. There was only about four or five of them that were key witnesses that put him in prison for the rest of his life. Jesus had 500. The court's pretty easy to understand at that point, isn't it? It was history and it's true. Now, Paul then goes on to say, not only did it happen that they saw him, I saw him on the road to Damascus as one abnormally born, not deserving to be called an apostle because I was a killer, a persecutor of Christians. But this is what he says in verse 10. He declares the gospel is, was of great effect. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. I'm Popeye the sailor man. Sorry, I didn't add that. Now I'm dating myself. He says, by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. New International says it was not of little effect. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that was within me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preached and so we believed. I don't know if you understand what he's trying to say, but this is what he's trying to say. The grace of God affected me in ways I cannot explain. It changed my direction. So let me ask you this question. Has your relationship with God changed the way you live your life? I'm talking about in the workplace. I'm talking about in the marketplace. I'm talking about in your family place. Has the gospel changed your life? Standard's pretty high, isn't it? Pretty high. What he's trying to say is this, is, is literally that God is good. He's the one who sets the standard. And because God hates sins, he punishes those who are guilty of sin. And maybe that doesn't appeal to our world today. But to put it bluntly, as Francis Chan says, when you get your own universe you can make your own standards. God sets the standards. Not the preacher, not the elders, 
not the deacons, not even the church. God sets the standards. And the standards is pretty simple. We're all sinners. And we're lost without the saving blood of Jesus Christ. If you've accepted him as your Lord and Savior, praise God. Put spring in your step and let him use you in your kingdom, in his kingdom. Because God can use you. Don't be afraid. I told the story when I closed this morning. I'll tell it again. I think I got time. You guys hungry yet? We're right at an hour. We're all right. Keep on preaching. preaching. If you'll keep on singing, I love his voice. Uh, About a year ago, we executed a man named uh, Carmen Deck. Carmen um, was a freshman in high school, in DeSoto High School, when I was a senior. I never knew him. I didn't hang around with the crowd that he hung around with, and I'm kind of glad of that. In 1996, he, uh, he, he invited himself into a home. He went, stopped at an elderly home outside of DeSoto, knocked on the door, said, I need some directions, I'm lost, uh, or, or said, I need to make a phone call or something. And anyway, he makes his way into the house, and as soon as he gets into the house with his sister, he pulls out a 25 revolver, and he holds the older couple hostage because he knows uh, knew the granddaughters, and he, and he was familiar with them, and he wanted to, uh, to rob them. So they went through the house trying to find money, and they finally found $50, or they gave him $50 thinking that would placate him. It didn't. There was over $9,000 in the home. We know that after the fact, but at the time, uh, Jim was not going to tell them that. Jim and Zelma Long were the victims of Carmen Dett. After he'd been in there for about two hours, he laid them face down on their bed and then contemplated 10 minutes what he was going to do, and then he executed them in their, in their bedroom. Uh, I just transferred to Potosi, and I'd been there maybe two or three weeks and uh, came across the ticker tape during the news that Carmen had lost his stay for his execution. Well, he lost his stay because he got his stay to begin with, and he decided he was going to try to get his case overturned, and when he went back to the processing attorney, of course, they took more evidence and put him back on death row. As I left the prison that day, my boss, the deputy warden, says to me, Mark, you probably ought to go home and read that case. And I said, okay, which was an unusual request. So I went home, and I Googled it and went to some of the the websites that we can go to to look this stuff up, and I did. And as soon as the picture of the victims came up, and the names, I got this real heavy feeling in my gut. You ever have one of those sickening feelings? Mainly because uh, of the fact I knew of the murder and I had forgotten about it. I mean, I knew about it and remembered it, but Zelma Long was my mother's second cousin. What came back to me immediately was my my mother calling me in Indiana and saying, hey, uh, Zelma and, and Jim were murdered last night. I remember that phone call just as clear as day. And I'm sitting there thinking, what am I going to do? This, the, I'm familiar with this case, and we're not to be overly familiar with any offender. And there's policies, and there's all that kind of stuff that's going on. And, and what came out of that was I came back to the office the next day, and he says, did you look him up? And I said, yes. Why did you ask me to do that? He says, because I knew you were from the area, and I probably thought you had a connection. And I said, okay, what do I do? Because we have to declare them. And 
if they don't like it, then I have to move or he has to move and he's not moving. So now you know why I'm feeling the way I'm feeling. And he looked at me and he asked me a question that I answered immediately. And I want to tell you, it's, it was a God answer. It wasn't me. It was just God saying, this is how it's going to be. The question was, will you treat him any different? And my answer was no. I won't treat him any different. He says, then there's no need to write anything up on paper, is there? I said, no, there's not. Then I said, do I have permission to tell him, though? And he goes, yes, can I watch? <laughs> Prison can be kind of that way. I brought Carmen in. I set him down across from me, and I said, Carmen, I need to talk to you about your crime. His first words out of his mouth is a typical offender. I didn't do it. And you know what I said to him? I don't ever want to hear that out of your mouth again. And you, know, you want to know why? The Supreme Court has, of the United States has found you guilty twice. The Supreme Court in Missouri has found you guilty twice. And a jury of your peers have found you guilty. You are guilty. He says, oh, you don't understand. There's new evidence. There was a phone call made out of the kitchen. I said, in 1996. He goes, yes. I said, how do you know it was made out of the kitchen? He goes, what do you mean? I said, there was a phone in the kitchen. There was a phone in the bedroom, and there was a phone in the basement. And there, were, there was probably one up in the second floor. And he looked at me, he goes, how'd you know that? I said, because I grew up in that house. You killed my mother's cousin. I thought I was going to have to peel him off the ceiling. But I had his ID, couldn't leave. <laughs> and I said, Carmen, I want you to know something. I care so much about your soul. I could care less about your flesh. And for the first time, I knew that God was telling me how I needed to minister. I care about the souls of these men. I can't change their flesh. What he did in 96, I can't do anything about. You see, we got a lot of hate in this world. And we ought to have hate for the flesh. But not for the soul. And we worked and worked. At best, Carmen was an agnostic when I first met him. I got word two days before they executed him, after they transferred him to Bonterre, he sent word through this same deputy warden, hey, I've made my peace with God. I know who Jesus is, and I've accepted him. I don't know. It's not my job to know that. All I know is, is that he needed the gospel, and we gave him every opportunity to accept. I pray I see him. I know I'll cry if I don't. But God will wipe every tear from my eye. Whether I'm rejoicing or whether I'm hurting for the ones that are lost. But what do we need to do? Share the gospel. Why? Because of their souls. Not because of their flesh. Jesus said, don't fear those who can kill the flesh. Fear the one who can kill the flesh and the soul. Hmm. let's go for the souls. Let's make first things first, the gospel, in its fullest power, and may it have all the effect that we know it can have. Father God, I pray that as we contemplate what you've just shared through me, I pray that you'll fix anything I messed up. And Lord, that, uh, that your spirit would help Maybe someone here today whose soul really needs to, to 
come in contact with you in a saving way. So Father, I pray that you will nudge them with your spirit, that you will draw them unto yourself. I pray that we've lifted you high today as Moses did and that you would draw all men unto you even now. Thank you for this church. I pray that you will continue to increase their influence and their purpose in this community. And Father, I pray that they'll take the gospel and make first things first. Now, Lord, we give ourselves to you. In Jesus' name, amen.